Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about trains, planes and automobiles, but mainly automobiles. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories, including new vehicles from Kia and Nissan, an interview with Rob Fraser, who has been driving a couple of dual-cab utes that couldn't be more different. One's a Jeep and one's an Isuzu. In our feedback section, we tried to clarify some comments we made last week, which we thought were made with clarity, but a transcription service suggested that we may have been just a tad rude. We have some motoring minutes and another interview where we recently visited the township of Riddell, southwest of Sydney, and the lovely railway buildings that were there. The railways have been important to the town, and railway historian Stuart Sharp gives us the politicking that went into developing the station. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program rolling first with the news. A car doesn't need to have a lot of power to be enjoyable to drive. The latest Kia Picanto is their smallest vehicle, which dominates the compact passenger car segment, taking three quarters of the sales. The base model has a modest 62 kilowatts of power and a five-speed manual that could do with an extra gear, but it was really fun to drive. With less power, you need to be more engaged with the driving. It's aimed at the urban market, but it toured on the open road very well. Without undue noise and on twisty country roads, it really felt good. Picantos don't have all the safety technology like Lane Keep Assist, but all now have an 8-inch infotainment screen, automatic emergency braking, and a rear-view camera. And they still have a 7-year warranty. The base model is $14,700 plus on-roads, and there are currently drive-away deals for under $17,000. In the upper large SUV category, the Toyota Land Cruiser rules the roost in sales, but so far this year their sales are down, while its current main competitor, the Nissan Patrol, has increased sales by 9%. The Patrol was updated late in 2019. It only comes with a petrol V8 pushing out 298 kilowatts and 560 newton metres of torque through a 7-speed automatic. There are two variants, but now the lower grades come with a wide range of safety features, including intelligent cruise control, lane departure warning and intervention, and blind spot warning and intervention. Additional features now on both grades include emergency braking, forward collision warning, and rear cross traffic alert. The the top-of-the-range TIL is more lounge room inside than rugged off-roader with mood lighting and wood panelling. The TI is 77800 and the TIL nearly 93000 plus on-road costs. More vehicles have been identified as having faulty Takata airbags. 
Toyota Australia has added 6,260 Corolla vehicles produced between March 2003 and October 2005 to the compulsory Takata safety recall campaign. As the airbags get older, a combination of high temperatures and humidity can affect airbags with the fault. If you are involved in a collision, the airbag can go off with too much explosive force, causing sharp metal fragments to shoot out and kill or seriously injure people in the vehicle. Toyota says that alternative parts for this Takata airbag recall are already available to commence replacement. Affected vehicle owners will be notified by SMS, email and mail and asked to take their vehicle to their closest preferred Toyota dealer for repair. Inspection and, when required, replacement of the front passenger airbag inflator will take approximately two hours. There is no charge for any of this work. Nissan Leaf electric cars can act as a power source for external devices and have been used in some emergency situations. Now the company has produced a concept emergency response vehicle called Relief that is specifically designed for emergency work. To better enable the car to navigate roads where there might be obstructions or fallen debris, the Relief's ride height has been raised, there's a custom sump guard, wider track, custom wheel arches, mud flaps and all-terrain tyres on 17-inch motorsport wheels but it doesn't have four-wheel drive. The rear seats have been removed and the floor levelled to provide storage for essential equipment. Once a relief arrives at a disaster zone, a bespoke pull-out desk extends from the boot with a 32-inch LED screen and dedicated power supply, creating an operational hub to run communications from and manage the recovery process. The time it takes to settle a car insurance claim is being shortened and the accuracy of initial estimates is improving because US insurers now use artificial intelligence to generate repair estimates. A trend in recent years has been to get the repairer or the customer to send in photos for an assessor to make an estimate, but this has proved to be highly inaccurate. Now, customers can download phone apps through their insurers to guide them through the process of taking and uploading photos that can be evaluated by artificial intelligence, producing a near-instantaneous damage estimate. The best algorithms already provide estimates in a few seconds and are as accurate as those produced by experienced human estimators. The pandemic has made AI-powered estimating even more attractive because the technology reduces or even eliminates the need for face-to-face interaction between drivers and insurance adjusters. There is a strong push from transport and city planners to remove big tolls from a few roads and replace them with congestion pricing, a small toll per kilometre that can be raised or lowered depending on when and where you travel. In this way, people can reduce their tolls by changing the time they travel, but if they have to make a trip, they are not hit with very high toll charges for using the roads we would prefer them to use. Politicians have steadfastly refused to consider this approach. And simply asking people to vote on the issue will generate all-or-nothing opinions typically based on a narrow understanding of the consequences. Now, San Francisco County Transportation Authority 
is engaged in ongoing outreach, the latest pillar of which is an online game, Unclog Fog City, which will encourage residents to design their own congestion pricing scheme, thereby gathering data on their opinions. And that has been the news. Hey Rob, what have you been driving? Last week I actually drove two utes, the Jeep Gladiator and the brand new Isuzu D-Max. They are significantly different in image? Very different. I mean, this is where you can say they are both dual-cab four-wheel drive utes, but in many ways they could not be further apart from each other. They are close and yet so far apart. Looks, they're different. I don't think I've driven a car for a while that has attracted as much attention as what the Jeep has. For all the right reasons? Yeah, look, it was, I mean, it was a, I'm trying to think, of a, a high, hybrid blue, I think they called it, or something like that. But it was a really beautiful, deep blue colour, and, I mean, it, it does look quite stunning and quite different, that's for sure. Very long wheelbase, about three and a half metres or just under, and it just it just has a bit of a an odd appeal, but it certainly attracted attention, that's for sure. It's very square, isn't it? It's old style in one sense. Yeah, very Jeep. <laughs> As I described it, it's very Jeep. Not in the sense of the grand ones of the SUV, but more in the sense of the traditional old utility. It's like someone took a a Jeep Wrangler and then chopped off the back and put a tray on the back. I mean, obviously it was a lot more sophisticated than that, but that's what it looks like. They've, they've stretched out the, the wheelbase to give it a sausage dog type look. Yeah, a Jeep Wrangler with a tray on the back. The Wrangler was very much that one that looked like young people going down to the beach eating a hamburger sort of look to it. How did the Jeep go generally on on the open road, on the bitumen? Because of its length of the wheelbase, it sat pretty good on the road. It was a little bit sort of wandery in the steering because, I mean, it is a big four-wheel drive. But it actually was quite smooth and quite quite relaxed, I think, driving once you got used to it. Is it made to go off-road? Oh, look, absolutely. The only thing, I mean, it's it's trail-rated, and Jeep do not rate their vehicles unless they meet all the requirements. So it it is trail-rated. I took it on fire trails, I took it on the beach, and it just you know did it all with ease, to be honest. The only thing I would say is that the long wheelbase, a couple of times on a few sand humps, you could sort of feel the the bottom sort of scraping, but it is well protected underneath. So it's got a certain funeral hearse length to it, does it? It is. It's it's almost as long. It's five and a half odd metres long and with about a three and a half metre wheelbase. So it's it's a fairly hefty beast, that's for sure. Now, the D-Max, is this more modern in its looks and its performance? Very much so. It is. It's what we classify here in Australia as a typical dual-cab ute. The D-Max... Luckily, in Australia, we still get the three-litre turbo diesel engine. You know, it has a bit more power and a bit more torque, but it is reliable and robust, and you know, it's what they use in their four-tonne trucks, so it will go forever. It's class-leading in terms of safety features. It's improved, I would say, probably 50% on the previous vehicle, and that was pretty good. And off-road, it, like the previous vehicle, it performs effortlessly. 50% improvement in comfort, in sound, in ease of drive, those sorts of parameters? Yeah, look, it's it's a little bit of everything. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Everything seems to have improved a little bit, and it all adds up to when you're sitting in it and riding in it, you think, oh, this is, this is a lot better. 
And the old one wasn't bad, but this is a lot better. Isuzu is not a common name as much as we might think in terms of private and, and family sorts of cars. Is it doing well? Is it battling against that image? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question. It In Thailand, for example, where it's made, it often outsells the Hilux. So it's the number one selling vehicle on many occasions, and it battles Hilux for that position. As we know in Australia, Hilux and Ranger have that battle. But the Isuzu should and does sell pretty well here. It makes some inroads into the fleet market and the mines and that type of stuff. But I think overwhelmingly a lot of the buyers are private buyers. And a lot of grey nomads want that reliability, robustness, and also the towing ability as well. It tows effortlessly. The Jeep and the Isuzu D-Mac should be on shopping lists, but different shopping lists. Look, absolutely. The the D-Max, I think they'll get a lot of conquest sales. They'll get people who are looking at the likes of the Ranger or the Triton or uh, the Hilux. They'll look at the D-Max and they'll go, yes, I, I don't mind this one. The Jeep Gladiator, it's in a different league. It's you know $75,000 plus. Oh. I think most of its sales will come from the Jeep enthusiasts that have been waiting for this for some time. They're just going to go and buy it. So they're people who dress to impress. Jeep people generally don't dress to impress. They, In fact, you could say the Gladiator undresses to impress because you can take the windscreen off, you can take the roof off, oh. you can take the door off, and you can have almost totally open-air driving. That's really old style, isn't it? Very old style Jeep. Very cool, actually. It's almost counterculture. It's almost doing it in your own way, which you understand and perhaps even enjoy that other people wouldn't be wanting to do it. David, you have just described 95% of Jeep Wrangler buyers. I should be in their marketing department, Rob. (laughs) It's lovely to talk to you. Thanks, mate. I appreciate your time. Thanks, David. You're listening to Overdrive. On this program, we do try to enunciate clearly, and we also try to maintain a high degree of decorum. But sometimes people may mishear what is being said. Two comments from our last program, from our mechanical engineer Fred Brain, led to a transcription service totally misunderstanding what was said. Sometimes, of course, the phone line can flutter and cause an imperfection in recording what was said. But this is his first comment. I must say, I did notice sort of a very small, even this is compared to the Kia. The transcription service recorded that as... I did notice sort of a very small penis as compared to the key. His second comment was this. That the key was probably seemed to be a more instantaneous start to the acceleration as compared to the Audi, but that was just probably from hopping from one to the other. Once you drive the Audi, you don't really notice it as you're going, I think. Now, I should point out that we thought the Audi that we were driving was a particularly nice car. Nonetheless, the transcription service seemed to put a different interpretation on it when it felt that what Fred said was, once you drive the Audi, you don't really notice it as shit going on. If at any stage we do say anything that you feel needs to be clarified, by all means write to us at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi RS Q3 Sportback, 2.5 litre, TFSI Quattro. That's a mouthful for a lot of car. 
The RSQ3 will jump from 0 to 104.5 seconds and tops out at an electronically restricted 250km an hour. But sheer performance doesn't give the RSQ3 full credit. It is just so easy and comfortable to drive around every day in auto. But select the dynamic drive mode and the character changes completely. It changes from an urban SUV to a howling beast and the exhaust note is music to the ears. A pleasant surprise is how well equipped the RSQ3 comes. With standard wireless Apple CarPlay connectivity and a charging tray, Audi virtual cockpit, stunning matrix LED headlights, heated sports front seats and RS sports suspension with adaptive dampers. Priced from just under $90,000 plus the usual costs, the Audi RS Q3 is a performance bargain and definitely on my shopping list. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Rydal is a small rural village in New South Wales. It's located about 154 kilometres west of the state capital, Sydney. We visited it the other day when we were testing the Nissan Patrol and the Kia Sorento. Overdrive's mechanical engineer, Fred Brain, and his partner, Pamela, stayed in the old station master's office, right on the railway line, now turned into a and b And we talked about that last week, of course. Now, Rydal was once the end of the line, and the railway was an important part of the township. Railway historian Stuart Sharp knows much about the station and the role of the railways. Good day, Stuart. Hello, David. When did Rydal get the railway line? The railway arrived in 1870 and stayed there as the terminus for 19 months. Only for 19 months? Yes, because of the timing. 1870 was a key year in the government financial uh, history because it was at that time the Select Committee of the Legislative Assembly was thinking that the engineering charge, John Whitten, was spending too much money and they wanted to review ways to extend the lines beyond Rydal. So there the loan stayed for 19 months and for 19 months the uh, contractors built one kilometre of line each month before the next section was open to Taranar. Rydell, David, is right on the range. Right near Rydell Railway Station is what was known as the 111 mile post. Now, that was 111 miles from Sydney, and that marked the change in the watershed of the rivers flowing east and west. Now, the interesting thing about that, that's at Rydell, it's the peak geographically of the Western Line, but also it's the peak of the financial history of the railways because after Rydell, the money becomes tight and the lovely architecture that you see at Rydell then starts to drain off as the line goes to west. The line to Oberon branched off at Taranar. The general politics, and uh, but also the politics of organisations, make such a big distance. Actually, the Rydell Station Marson's office is quite elegant. What the nature of its design? Whitten had a preference to the Gothic design, so Rydell's in the Gothic design. But money was tight. But at that stage, that's right at the end of his parliamentary approved allocation. Now, there were two incentives to him that helped him produce a quite elegant building at Rydell. The first was James Barnett was using the Gothic style at the same time in the uh, construction of the mortuary station in Regent Street at Sydney. 
an absolutely top building. And also he had another competitor who was building the line to Richmond. Now, Whitney said, I'm not getting involved in the Richmond branch because you want me to lower my construction standards. So what happened is this, the bloke who did get the job put these exquisite, simple but elegant Gothic design. So Whitten had pressure on him to produce a really top-class building, and he did that at Rydell. But the interesting thing, David, is that while it is elegant, it is small. It is only 50 feet by 30 feet. So while it looks great, it's restrained in overall cost. You've got to remember the other incentive that Whitten was having was to complete his first allocated route uh, approvals, and that was Goulburn, which opened in 1869, to Bathurst and uh, to Murrundi. But after 1870, money drains away, and you see very few examples of Rydell being constructed later. We know that transport can have an immense impact on land use. When it was the end of the line, did the local township of Rydell boom? I don't think that there was much of a village there. It might have been a pub, and, and that's it. That doesn't take much, David, for a village to happen. I mean, yes, the contractors will bring hundreds of blokes in, but it's only for a short time. The, one, the other reasons is the, why Rydell building survives is because it is pretty, but it was used by Whitten as the office and house for the resident engineer and his family. Now, he was the only bloke in the construction uh, camp that took his family with him. So up to that stage, Witten says, we'll build the station first, and that's where you will live. And that worked well. But after that, money gets tight. And so Witten says, Shit, what am I going to do now? And he says, I'll build temporary timber offices for the resident engineer. So again, you see this drain away. The other interesting thing where you see in the Western Line that money becomes tight, the Witten right through across the Blue Mountains builds all these gatehouses. Some of them still surviving. Lovely Gothic design. But the last one he built was at Wellerawang, the previous station to Rydell. After Wellerawang, no more gatehouses uh, on the entire Western Line until the other side of Orange, and so the absence of a gatehouse there is a quite a road that goes over the railway line. No gatehouse. So the gatehouse was there for a safety measure for a level crossing. That's right. Every public road up till 1869 had a gatehouse, but after that, when money becomes critical, that's one thing he did away with. What they did is they would have a single building that would combine both a residence and the station master's office and also accommodation for the staff to walk from the station to the level crossing. And, of course, what Whitman had to do was align stations to level crossings to eliminate the need to have a public road at other than a station. And I presume at a station the train is likely to be stopping so, or more likely to be stopping, and so slower, obviously. Yes. I believe Rydell actually boomed for a very short period of time. It only has one pub now, but it ended up with eight pubs, five stores, and five blacksmiths. 
but the 2006 census says there was only 609 people. 2011, it was 188, and Rydal today has, some say, about 40 houses and a population of 80. So when it was the end of the line, it must have been important for a short period of time. I spoke to the guy from the railways who looks after the buildings, his job is to go around and inspect them. He was saying that the railway station there on the side with the station master's house is owned by the railways, but the other side is owned by John Holland. Do you know anything about that? John Holland isn't the owner. It holds the contract for the management of the line. All the actual railway beds is, up until July this year, was held in the name of the State Rail Authority. But in July this year, the state government set up a new asset holding body that is the legal owner of all the railway infrastructure. And John Holland is simply a contractor that looks after the permanent way and buildings. There was a branch line to Oberon. It went from Taranar, a very steep line, of course, unproductive and unremunerative from the day it was opened. It's a bit of a warning. When it was opened in 1923, they only had three trains a week. And the service never increased beyond that for the next 70 years before it was closed. So it was built in a time, in 1923, after World War One, when there was a crisis to find jobs for diggers from World War One. So one of the easiest ways that is to build railway lines. And that's slotted in to the government idea. The objective of the New South Wales government and other states was to provide a rural yeomanry in which people will live on the land and produce goods and produce to send back to the motherland. To the motherland. <laughs> well, I believe that the population of Rydal may still reflect that it's 95% born in Australia, which is quite different from the general population. And I make no judgment on that. It's just a, a fact. And I think its heritage is almost strongly uh, UK based even now. So perhaps it, it it's a reflection of those times. There, there is now one hotel, two churches and no shops there. But it does have the Daffodils Festival at Rydal. And I understand that's because daffodils were a fundamental part of Rydal in the UK. Oh, OK, yes. Well, the other big thing that was um, produced in Rydal was potatoes. Now demolished, there was a special building at the station to uh, load potatoes. Oh, is that because of the soils, the nature of the farming land? Yeah, the freezing environment, you could say. It is cold. David, of course, let's not forget to mention that you can still get to Rydell by passenger train, that it will stop on request to sit down and pick up passengers. Tell you a funny story. At Tarana, there is a little coffee shop which looks a bit down and out on the outside. Inside is beautiful and... You have to book if you want to go there on the weekend. A lot of people doing it. But next door to the Tarana coffee shop is a house in which a man lives who doesn't own a driver's licence or a car. Tarana is also the home of the famous racehorse Hondo Grattan. 
you go into the local pub there, if it's still open, that has all these racehorses' photographs. Ah, oh, this is lovely. You mentioned that it was only lasted 18 months. Some say, I read somewhere that the line was extended to Bathurst. Ah, oh, that was all the way to Bathurst in 1876. Yes, but it just depends on what your definition of Bathurst was, because to John Whitten, Bathurst wasn't where you and I would think Bathurst was. Bathurst was Raglan, which is on the eastern side of the river. By the time the Whitten's pushing the railway towards Bathurst, he has less and less funds. So he makes a strategic decision that he's going to terminate the line before it crosses the river, and he provides the state's only temporary building in brickwork. Anyway, he wouldn't move. When all the local police say, no, no, you've got to bring the line in to the town, he refused. Finally, he had to give in. But to show his anger, he did not complete the station building at the time of the line opening. It was just a pile of bricks. On Railway Parade, isn't it? Yes. Stuart, we perhaps should do a series of these talks. They're absolutely lovely. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, David. And that's Stuart Sharp, railway historian extraordinaire, who has an absolute passion for understanding the details and the real cause and effect of how our railways have been built and the impact they've had on local communities. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Rob Fraser, Stuart Sharp, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's always our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.